to define our own European strategy and principles for engagement with China. So as China is becoming more important to member states, it is becoming more difficult to find consensus. There's a lot at stake because this is an important relationship. Today, the EU and China are major trading partners. In fact, in 2022, bilateral trade in goods reached a record level of 857 billion euros. Crucially, China is the EU's largest source of imports, exceeding the combined share of imports from the US and the UK. Yet the EU-China relationship is about more than figures. The Russian war against Ukraine has been only the latest event to highlight the differences between the two entities in terms of geopolitical strategies and values. So what is Europe's strategy vis-à-vis the Asian giant? Does it have one at all? And what is coming up next in the relations between the EU and China? Hi, my name is Gail Rago. And I'm your host for this episode of the Bold Europe podcast. In this episode, we'll discuss the relationship between the EU and China, how today this relationship appears to be shaped by national strategies adopted by EU member states, and whether it is possible to imagine a European approach to China. To uncover this complex topic, our guests today are Jacob Mardell and Janka Ertel. Jacob Mardell is a research analyst with six years of experience exploring China's global impact. Jacob is the author of the Heinrich Bolsch Stiftung EU study towards a common European-China strategy, mapping EU member states' policy documents on China. Janka Ortel is the director of the Asia program and a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Yanka has published widely on topics related to EU-China relations, US-China relations, security in the Asia-Pacific region, Chinese foreign policy, 5G and emerging technologies, as well as climate cooperation. So welcome today to the podcast, Jacob and Yanka. It's so nice to have you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So I believe there couldn't be a better starting point for this episode but referring to your latest publication, Jacob, towards a common European-China strategy, mapping EU member states' policy documents on China. A study which was published by the Heinrich Boll Stiftung. Although the title is quite self-explanatory, I'd ask you first of all to set the context. What has been the object of this study and why is it relevant today? So broadly, of course, the topic is uh, European-China policy or strategy, but more concretely, I looked at published policy documents that mention China. So I did a bit of talking to in-country experts for background, but the main object was really documents publicly available mentioning China. So we're talking about national security, defense strategies, foreign policy documents, foreign policy papers on the Indo-Pacific or Asia, and in rarer instances on China itself. Why it's relevant today, I think we're clearly at a point of great evolution in European-China policy, and to simplify massively, China over the past 10 years has become much stronger and more assertive, and all of the problems that existed in the EU-China relationship, like access, human rights, etc., have become more problematic. Um, And over the past five years in particular, Europe's begun paying more and more attention towards that movement of China towards uh, centre stage, as Xi Jinping put it. 
And the result is a toughening of European stances on certain issues. And the strategies we're going to talk about can be seen as part of this wider evolution expressed through various European policy papers. So starting with the EU-China strategic outlook back in March 2019, we've had a couple of of national China strategies. And then the immediate context is the publication of this uh, German strategy on China, or rather maybe the study was trying to elaborate on the context for this German-China strategy, if you see what I mean. Where did this thing come from? What other similar documents are there out there? And why publish a strategy at all? So those are the sort of questions I wanted to answer. Fair enough. So who's in and who's out, so to speak? Meaning which countries actually have a China strategy? And how do these strategies actually differ? Can you give us some examples? Sure. So we only have four, really. Technically, there are six policy documents that specifically focus on China. Slovakia has a 2017 document, which is all about enhancing economic cooperation with China, has sort of been dropped. And then we have an even older 2008 strategy from Denmark. But in terms of in the last, this sort of turn I was talking about, the last five years, we only have four from the Netherlands. We have a new balance published in May 2019. Then next comes Sweden with a government communication on approach, approach to matters relating to China. That's September of that year, 2019. And then Finland's governmental action plan on China, June 2021. And finally, of course, the German strategy on China, July this year. Maybe worth mentioning that Switzerland, although not EU member state, also has a 40-page China strategy, which was adopted in 2021. And then you have a range of EU member states that have an Asia or Indo-Pacific strategy that feature China to various degrees. But it's really these four, with the most recent one being Germany's, of course. And anything you want to say about how some of these strategies differ from each other, Jacob? They all differ from one another, especially in the sense that they're published at at different times. They have a lot of commonalities because they're all based on this sort of core EU framework. I would say they probably differ most in their sort of sophistication. And it might be unfair of me to say whether that's uh, you know, a result of Germany being more sophisticated in its approach than the Netherlands or whatever, because they're published at different times. But I kind of see them on a continuum, a, a sort of evolution of European policy on China and a general toughening. I think something worth pointing out is we're, I'm using the word strategy a lot, but These are really more similar to position papers. They put a sort of uh, stake in the ground, if that's the right expression. They try and establish a common government position on China. And in in doing so publicly, they function almost as as a manifesto. You know, this is the framework we've agreed and we've come to through this arduous process of consensus building. And in this sense, they sort of push the envelope forward. They're progressive. So there are obviously some differences between them because the countries are different and their economic relationships with China are different. But in the sense that they have one, there's more commonalities between them. Janka, one of the countries mentioned by Jacob is of course Germany, which indeed published one of the most recent strategies on China. In your recently published book, you speak of the end of the China illusion. What do you mean by this? And how does it relate to Jacob's insights? 
Yeah, so the kind of the German-China strategy speaks at the very outset in its analysis bit about kind of what China are we actually facing, about the fact that China has changed and therefore Germany's approach to China needs to change as well. But it doesn't actually say so much about how China has changed. It's also supposed to stay under 500,000 pages, so it really would be difficult to put all of that into it. But what the book that I wrote is trying to do is explain this how. China has changed and why this really needs to result in a different kind of approach. And the how is kind of the end of the China illusion, because we were thinking about China in a certain way, with a certain form of objectives that we put towards it, that all had at the heart of themselves that, that it was about that China would become more like us. That in the end, you know, all the trade that we would we would do and all the relations that we build and all the society society contacts, people-to-people contacts that we have would eventually lead to a, a closer relationship. And what has happened over the last decade is that the relationship has not become closer, but quite the opposite, that it has, has drifted further apart and that we're now in a situation where the Chinese economy is a, a real challenge to our industry, where China's kind of global order, understanding of global order is a real challenge to our understanding of where we want the global order to be and what we want the rules of the world to be and where kind of China's um, societal model and its approach to its own society and its aggressive approach to its regional neighborhood is becoming a challenge to our interests at home and abroad. And I think this is where we're now facing a very new situation and the German-China strategy is a first indicator of that. I don't think that this is the end of a process. It's the end of a thought process that has happened, as Jacob, I think, has described really well. It's sort of the government talking to itself. It's figuring out where it's at. It's figuring out where the different parts of the government are, what what they are actually doing with China. But it is a starting point for a broader societal conversation about, and now what? Because the and now what is still a bit, I would say, muffled in the strategy. We hear a lot of analysis, we see that, but we don't hear the, okay, so what are we going to do with this? Some aspects are mentioned in the German-China strategy in terms of we have to strengthen ourselves, we have to understand better and how we relate to China in the future, and we have to be slightly more lined up in the government. But it doesn't go into details. And I think that work is starting now. And this is a work that is not only starting in Germany, but within the overall de-risking agenda that we're seeing, this is something that's happening across Europe right now. Jacob, anything you'd like to add? I suppose I'd just pick up on that interesting thing Janka said about this being um, a conversation the government is having with itself. Because one of the questions at the front of my mind when I began researching for this study was why publish a China strategy at all? Perhaps if it feels like there might be an obvious answer, but as I've pointed out, only four EU member states have policy document published specifically dealing with China. That doesn't, I don't think, mean that other countries don't have some form of a China strategy. I think, for instance, Belgium uh, has an internal China strategy, and I'm sure lots of other countries have some form of strategy on China. And their argument or logic for not publishing is, I suppose, quite a compelling one, because if they publish a strategy, Beijing then knows about it, and therefore it might not end up being a very effective strategy. So that's why I also mentioned this being a position paper, and I like this idea Yanka mentioned of the government having a conversation with itself. You can do several things by publishing this kind of document that you can't do with an internal strategy. I mean, from sort of increasing transparency and accountability in the policymaking process, but also the process of formulating a strategy itself being very useful. And I think we've seen that in Germany, that people 
writing the document, learn more about the issues, solicit new opinions, and then you have this sort of painful consensus building. And then once that formulation process is through, the benefit of publishing is that you have something available as a terms of reference, conferring a sort of sense of legitimacy to a particular policy direction and providing a framework. So also the idea Yanka mentioned of it being ongoing, I think is interesting. It's something to, to build on, but it sort of fixes in a particular direction just by existing. And it allows, if I may add, that, you know, you have an actual societal conversation about this because China policy used to be in the realm of the kind of foreign policy specialists and it used to be dealt with sort of behind the scenes and in, you know, or in kind of large gatherings with um, heads of state and government. But it wasn't necessarily something that would affect European citizens at a kind of citizen level. And I think that has changed because with the agenda that we're now having, with the de-risking agenda, this means that this will be about a new redistribution of wealth, of power. It's about kind of the future of German industry, the future of European industry, the future of industrial policy. Where is taxpayers' money being spent and where is it not being spent because one prioritizes differently and one weighs the risks differently. And if citizens are affected, then citizens should also have a basis of kind of judging their governments on what they're actually doing um, and how they're thinking about this and why they are rejigging certain things and why they are shifting priorities. So I do think it actually also allows for this conversation with the European publics to take place. This is our traditional Did You Know section, where we provide an additional piece of context to the podcast conversation. Today, we thought it would be useful to provide you with a brief chronicle about EU-China relations in 2023. At the end of September 2023, European Commission Executive Vice President Valdis Dombrovskis and Vice Premier of the People's Republic of China, He Lifeng, co-chaired the 10th EU-China High-Level Economic and Trade Dialogue. This is the main platform for the EU and China to discuss economic and financial matters, as well as trade and investment cooperation. The two sides discuss the macroeconomic situation in the EU, China and globally. More specifically, the two sides discussed market access and supply chain issues. Another key topic was Russia's war against Ukraine. In this context, Executive Vice President Dombrovskis called on China to play a constructive role in ensuring lasting peace. Earlier in September, the European Council President Charles Michel met with China's Premier Li Qiang on the margins of the G20 summit in New Delhi, India. Charles Michel confirmed the shared interest to hold the EU-China summit by the end of the year. We refer to this upcoming EU-China summit in the next part of our chat with Yanka and Jacob. Thanks a lot, Yanka and Jacob, for these very analytical insights. I'd say that it is time to look a bit more at the scenarios and normative considerations. So I prepared a bunch of questions for you. First of all, how can we find a common European answer to China? And can we build on the national strategies that were discussed in the first part of this podcast? So where I think the German-China strategy works, and actually the speech of Ursula von der Leyen in March uh, 2023, I would put that almost in the realm of a new strategy because it was a speech that was so kind of decisive when it comes to a way forward or describing a way forward so that I could say it's sort of a, it's almost a semi-strategy speech at least, or um, it can be seen in that context of strategies that we have out there. I think with the German strategy and this speech do, they describe a version of reality a version of reality that the entirety of the German government is signing on to. What kind of China are we actually seeing? 
And that seems trivial. And it seems sort of self-evident that one would have a description of reality. But it really is a difference of whether you're saying we're on the way towards system competition or we're in system competition. Whether you say China is a rival or China's on the way to becoming a rival. These are very different ways of framing the reality that we're seeing. And I think that is where a European conversation about what kind of reality are we seeing. So is it a reality where the partner, the competitor, rival are three pillars that are sort of equal in their weight in terms of the relationship? Or is it a relationship, as the German strategy poses, that says there are aspects of partnership and there are aspects of competition, but everything takes place sort of against the background of systemic rivalry, which shifts the weight quite significantly. So I think this is where the conversation across Europe needs to start and say, can we, as EU member states, arrive at a collective description of reality that we actually agree on when we say this is the kind of China that we're seeing and this is the kind of world that we're describing and this is then the question then how do we situate ourselves in it is a second order one it, it kind of follows after that but that first bit I think a kind of collective strategy process could deliver. I'd just add to that that maybe even these documents can be part of this ongoing discussion and evolution in a more granular sense of contributing some new framing of a more specific issue hinting at a solution I think there's some dissatisfaction with the German strategy on China for not sort of providing too much in the way of detail, but that's also part of the ongoing conversation, provides a reference for conversations ongoing in Brussels, uh, in other member states, and I hope that these conversations feed into one another and we have this progression towards a more sophisticated response to China. But what we have to realistically probably agree on is that because there is a growing divergence, so as China is becoming more important to member state, it is becoming more difficult to find consensus. I think as long as it was relatively low in the list of priorities and the hierarchy of priorities of most member states, it was actually easier to come to joint positions because in the end, you know, it would be like, well, yeah, something else is more important. And if this is what you think we should do, okay, then we will agree on this. Now that China is particularly becoming more important in Eastern European countries with regard to its role in the war in Ukraine, this is actually has the potential to drive the European consensus further apart and will make it more challenging to come to collective positions because there is a, a real urge in Eastern European countries in the Baltics to say, hang on, you know, this position that the Chinese are taking at the moment, actively supporting Russia's war effort, is really not in our interest and we should speak out clearer. And the further you sort of are away from the border with Ukraine, the, the kind of more muted those voices become. And that will present a challenge in the future for formulation of policy positions vis-a-vis China. Just to add a bit of textual to support to what Yanka said, you see this in variations across the policy documents on China that in Eastern European states, transatlantic alignment and China-Russia access and how they discuss that differs somewhat to other EU member states. There is an emerging consensus of the partnership between Russia and China challenges European interests and the German strategy makes that crystal clear. It says that China's relationship with Russia, in particular, since Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine is an immediate security concern for Germany. But then you have the new Czech security strategy published in June, which is maybe a little bit more strongly worded, saying that Russia and China share the same interests to weaken the influence and unity of democratic countries. So to some extent, it matters enormously, sort of the difference between theory and practice, what these documents say, and how uh, countries actually act on them. But you can also see sort of slight hints of it in the documents themselves, which I find interesting. What next steps are needed, in your opinion, 
to reach a common European strategy, if that's even possible. Also, several EU officials visited China this year. Do their visits show us a direction in which the EU is steering? I think um, you can look at EU visits to China and, and see uh, a direction of travel, perhaps von der Leyen's visit and Macron's simultaneous trip to, almost simultaneous trip to China. You saw a pattern of Ursula von der Leyen working hard to fill a leadership gap on China and taking this tough line and then Macron getting in getting in trouble, having the controversy around him essentially saying Taiwan was a US-China concern and Europe should keep out. So I think this contrast between sort of the tough line, clearer line taken by Brussels and then this sort of fighting between uh, France and Germany on China, competition for leadership in Europe and really concern with domestic economic priorities as well. But the direction of travel it indicates, I think, is Perhaps the one Brussels is is taking us. I'm not sure if there's much going back, although there might be this to and fro and, and disagreement and the German-China strategy um, diluted, is it, and it might be as an indication of that. I would say, so I very much agree. I think the kind of the, what they say and what they do is a bit of a different story at the moment. So what are we seeing happening really at the EU level when it comes to the different tools that have been created in response to China? So the anti-coercion instrument or the IPI, the, um, the, the procurement instrument that have all been kind of clearly with China in mind created to give Europe the tools it needs to deal with the new challenge that China poses, particularly in the economic realm. What we see when we look at the member states and what they're doing in their relationship with China is that they're trying to preserve sort of a space for bilateral interactions to pursue their respective national interests, be it French wine and cheese or German cars. All of that needs to have a certain role in the conversation with the Chinese. And then there is obviously some virtue in having a multitude of different voices to say, well, we'll try different approaches in pursuing some of the key goals that we want to pursue when it comes to China in areas in which we need China to do certain things. I wouldn't even go as far as to say in which we need China as our partner or which we need China to cooperate, but where we have a clear ask. We say we would like the Chinese government to take a certain position um, when it comes to questions of decarbonization or when it comes to questions of its position vis-a-vis Russia or when it comes to nuclear disarmament. All of these are matters in which the Europeans are quite clear about the fact that they want to have their own voices around this and that they want to try different paths towards that. That in and of itself is fine, but as soon as those positions become contradicting European approaches, then it becomes more difficult. And I think what we're seeing is what Jacob has described as the to and fro, where the clarity of the strategic position is not very clear. And this is sometimes even within one government where one sees these different approaches. I think the Germans are a really good example of that, where you see you know, the German economics ministry and the foreign ministry say one thing and the chancellery saying something else. And then you have situations in which the Chinese government is quite capable in playing on that. And at the recent visit that we had here with the prime minister coming for the government consultations and the situation that for the first time there were no questions at the press conference asked to the Chinese premier, that is, I think, a step backwards. And it was something that was brought about by kind of a certain form of, I would say, strategic indecisiveness. People could make up their mind what exactly were the strategic priorities of this visit. And that has um, a potential to kind of have an impact on in the long run on relations, also for other European member states, because why would you 
then answer questions in Spain if you didn't have to do it in Germany. And I think we need to be quite mindful in the individual policies of each member state and very mindful of what leaders are saying at the moment, because this will have broader European repercussions. And on the Chinese side, kind of European policy is much more lined up than on the European side. I mean, there's a lot at stake because this is an important relationship. But in terms of what we can expect, maybe we should have fairly low expectations. We can probably expect something along similar lines to the last summit held last year. Ukraine will still be very important. There'll be words about how we count on China support, maybe with uh, an allusion to the fact that it's hurting the EU-China relationship. Uh, There'll be disappointment noted with Chinese sanctions. Maybe the EU readout will reiterate concerns on human rights, concerns about market access and concerns about the Taiwan Strait. So probably maybe a case of uh, damage control and, and just continuing dialogue rather than establishing more proactively some kind of agenda. But maybe I'm being pessimistic and Janka will tell us what else to look forward to. Janka, are you more optimistic? Well, again, it's one of these summits where if it actually takes place, that's a good thing. <laughs> um, you know, because we were in this, this zone now where these gatherings actually even physically happening, that's already a thing. And I think it is, despite all of the difficulties of the interactions that we're having, it is worth talking. But for the Europeans, I think it is moving into a zone where we're not talking for talking's sake, but where we're talking and actually having an agenda for what we want to achieve with this. And I think what the European Commission has done with the start of the EV subsidies probe that is now being put on the table is kind of threw down the gauntlet saying, you know, we actually have a problem with how this is our um, kind of economic relationship is developing. And this is something where the EU has the authority. This is not foreign policy. This is not all sorts of other things. This is classic good old trade policy. This is good old economic policy. We have the competencies here. And this is something for our summit Well, we can discuss about this and we can discuss whether this is something that we can de-escalate or whether this is something we can kind of have a proposition coming from the Chinese side that can actually be discussed. And I do think that it's useful at the moment to bring some of these things back to the slightly more old school topics as well, because we have a problem with the way that China is doing business with Europe and in Europe and for European companies in China. And there is enough to talk about. The question is whether we will actually get to that point in the conversation, whether we will actually get to a constructive conversation on these matters that actually are of concern to the Europeans, or whether this will all be sort of lost in the broader political turmoil of the relationship, in the broader concerns about US-China relations, about the broader concerns about Taiwan, broader concerns about where China is headed in general, and broader concerns about China's role in Ukraine. And what I would expect from the Commission here is to kind of continue on von der Leyen's relatively tough line of saying, we have interests, we have concerns, we don't like the fact that there's Chinese ammunition found in Ukraine, we don't like the fact, and just putting all of that out on the table, and then having a kind of a frank conversation about this behind closed doors, which is still possible, hopefully, but that could be not necessarily being the outcome of this so impressive, but more of a, this is the way in which we also communicate with the Chinese leadership in a more self-confident form and in a slightly more direct and, and more constructive way from our perspective when we say, well, this is actually what we are concerned about. Thank you so much, Janka and Jacob. I've learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners have too. Thanks very much for being here and taking us through it. And well, we hope everyone enjoys this podcast episode. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that brings us to the close of the 11th episode of the Bull Europe podcast. 
the podcast of the European Union Office of the Heinrich Bull Stiftung in Brussels. Check out the study Towards a Common European-China Strategy, Mapping EU Member States' Policy Documents on China by Jacob Mardell, which is available at eu.bull.org or eu.boell.org. Until the next episode, goodbye.